Hello, everyone. You may have noticed that we disappeared for a little bit. Sorry about not warning you. That was completely my fault. I a semi unexpectedly was offered a job and then I was very excited to accept a full-time position. Um, but that meant that I was going from working freelance at home for myself to working full-time out of the house, which meant that my time was suddenly very restricted and I was also moving at the same time. So unfortunately I did have to say, Hey, we can't, do pictorial for a hot minute while I figure this out. And the episode you're about to hear was actually recorded back in June, right before this happened, but I didn't have time to edit it. So we decided, hey, we're going to come back with this episode. So there are, there's a couple like dates that we mention um, that are not relevant anymore because it was recorded in June. Oops, my bad. Well, that's okay. I think it'll be a fun episode anyway, but yes, congrats and yay, we're back. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Or we will be back. We are we are cur- we are actively we are coming back. <laughs> this is the process of us being back. Um, but we wanted to talk to you, especially right now, because we are coming back for September, um, which is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And as many of you may know, for the fourth consecutive year, the Relay FM community is working together to support the life-saving mission of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. This is a very important cause to our community, and I am so proud that for the fourth year running, we we are working to raise money for St. Jude, which is just an unspeakably important organization that does incredible work. And this year, St. Jude actually celebrates its 60th year of leading the way um, in the world of childhood cancer research. And so since it opened in 1962, St. Jude's um, has been, they've been growing in size and capabilities, and um, they believe all children all over the world deserve the same chance at survival. And, um, you know, it's our fourth year, but they've been doing it for 60 years. Yeah, and hopefully they will be doing it for many, many more Um the treatments that have been developed at St. Jude's have increased the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80%. But unfortunately, that means it's still one in five children diagnosed in the United States will not survive childhood cancer. And tragically, uh, in some developing countries, four in five children do not survive childhood cancer. But St. Jude is working every single day to develop the life-saving treatments that will help bring that number up worldwide, and they will not stop until childhood cancer is eliminated. Whether it's uh, children in the United States coming to St. Jude for treatment or um, children from around the world who also uh, come to Memphis, Tennessee to receive treatment for childhood cancer, no family is ever charged a cent um, for this treatment and for any expenses that they need uh, while they are fighting cancer so that they can focus entirely on their children and their children getting better. And they are able to do this because of people like you who support St. Jude. For the fourth year in a row, Relay FM is doing a big campaign um, to not only support this life-saving work, but also to have, you know, some fun along the way. <laughs> um, there are some really fun incentives this year. Um, if you make an individual gift of $60 or more, you receive a digital bundle, including a wallpaper and screensaver packs. Um, and if you make a gift of $100 or more, uh, you receive a set of stickers in addition to that digital bundle. You can also this year create your own fundraising campaign um, 
for Relay FM, which can get you exclusive Relay FM merch. Um, depending on how much you raise in your campaign, starting at just $1 for those individual campaigns. You can go to stjude.org slash relay to donate, set up your own campaign, and learn more about all of this. Um, yeah, and you should mark your calendars for September 16th, which is our fourth annual podcast-a-thon, where Relay FM co-founders Stephen and Mike will be back together on campus at St. Jude, and they're going to host an eight-hour variety show featuring many Relay FM hosts and special guests, and apparently because they have to, like, eat or something in the middle of that, um, <clears throat> At some point in the stream, they're going to take a break and there's going to be some people, uh, and I will be one of those people, uh, that is that you're going to see. So um, it, that part is pre-recorded. So I I won't be live, but you should still see me. That apparently, I, I apparently it is happening. Uh, you will see me at around 1.45 Central Time. I found that out so I can tell you guys. So go watch. <laughs> Once again, that is September 16th, which is this Friday, if you're listening to this um, on the day that it comes out. That's 11 to 7 Central Time, and Betty's on around 1.45 Central Time. So uh, t- go watch and keep an eye out for Betty. And of course, please go to stjude.org slash relay to donate and support St. Jude. Hello and welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose and I did go to art school, but I love learning about art anyway. And I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I also really love learning about art and walking around museums a lot. And it turns out I walked around a museum um, looking at some art this past Friday. Which museum did you go to? So I went to the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. Um, as I mentioned in the last podcast episode, if I believe, or the one before, one of them, um, if those of you who tuned into that one, um, I now live in Boston. <laughs> one of us. One of us. Yeah. Not, not American yet. It takes a while for that to happen. And one still, of us. <laughs> like, still unsure if that's the route I'm going, but it's a nice place so far. Um, so uh, I went to a special exhibition that's on right now. It's called Turner's Modern World. It's from March 27th to July 10th, 2022. And it is about, um, or it's an exhibition that features the artwork of the um, British artist J.M.W. Turner, um, who lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Have you heard of this person, Quinn? I sure have. Oh, yeah. I feel like Boston really loves Turner. <laughs> yeah. That's just kind of the vibe that I get. I feel like he's like a favorite of sort of the whole Boston vibe. Because <laughs> Boston's very into the whole uh, colonial history thing, I guess, is what I would call this. Because there was so much going on in terms of like the Revolutionary War era. That's not that's not like exactly what Turner's deal is, but I just still feel like they have the same energy to me and that there's like that Turner's art just shows up a lot in Boston in my brain. Yeah, for me, it's like it's everywhere I turn, it's either history or it's a Dunkin Donuts, (laughs) (laughs) which I really like, by the way, because we basically we have our version of Dunkin Donuts is Tim Hortons. So basically, I just replaced Tim Hortons with Dunkin Donuts and it's working out so far. (laughs) 
they're basically the same thing yeah exactly so anyway enough but this episode is not about dunkin donuts it does seem like turner is a pretty big deal and one of the works i'll be talking about today is in the mfa's collection and it's like one of his most famous works, I don't even know if it's the famous, it might be, but we'll get into it later. Um, but a thing about this particular exhibition that I think is a little bit different than previous Turner shows that I've seen, because um, we actually had a Turner show at the AGO a number of years ago, which I actually um, did the tour for the show, so I kind of knew you know, a bit of a background of the biography of Turner. But this particular show, like, as I mentioned, it's called Turner's Modern World. So it really focused on, like, why Turner is a modern artist. And not only a modern artist, it kind of makes the argument that he, like, pioneered modernism, or at least, like, Western modernism, as we know it today. Like, he's, he's, considered by a lot of art historians the first modern artist based on what you know like have you heard this about him and like what do you know about him um based on what you've heard my understanding of turner is that he does a lot of paintings of ships that's the main thing that i've got he does a lot of very pretty paintings of ships and harbors and I haven't heard about his association with the modern art movement um, and this argument. I do. I think the stuff that I've seen of him, his has been more on the realistic side. But I also know that he's got a lot of like beautiful skies and sort of very um, evocative paintings of, of skies over the ocean kind of thing. So I can definitely even from the stuff that I've seen in my memory, I can definitely see where this conversation might be headed in that direction yeah for sure yeah he so yeah his his works definitely like it spans from yeah like highly representational to quite abstract but yeah like the interesting thing is so he did he was born in 1775 so that was actually the one year before america was america i just realized wow um <laughs> So, so close to being born the same year as the United States of America. So, you know, and he he painted and lived sort of around the early 1800s. So I guess like when I think of modernism, I don't think 230 years ago. Like that seems like very old to me. Uh, but the thing is like... Of course, like he, because he's kind of considered someone who's like pioneering a style, he's one of the earliest people who's quote unquote modern. It kind of makes sense, but uh, you wouldn't normally associate someone who's painting in like 1805, a modern artist. Would you agree? Yeah, that is a bit surprising to me. The gist of Turner, uh, I'll kind of go through it quickly and then we'll go through a bit of his biography and then we can talk about like why he's considered so modern. Um, but a particular part of his life is he lived through quite a tumultuous period of global change. Um, so he lived through the French Revolution um, and the, the Napoleonic Wars. And there's also a lot of like expansion of the British empires. There was the abolition of slavery in the B British colonies. And so and he also saw change, really rapid changes of the Industrial Revolution. So really, when it comes to modernism in in the sense of like technology and industry you could 
like a lot of people do argue that this was a time when things became more modern because there was a steam engine, there's like factories and trains and steamships. So the world, especially Britain, was modernizing in terms of technology. And he, like, for instance, you mentioned he painted a lot of ships. And that's a part of as a part of him depicting modernism, he was painting like ships, like steam steamships, also trains, and he also did paint like factories and basically just a lot of industry that that was going on in Britain. And I think he he was actually commissioned by a bunch of people who owned like businesses and industries to to paint I don't know their factories or their trains or something probably for commercial promotion i'm not sure um so like so he he did he did do a lot of that so the one of the one part of the argument of why he is considered modern um is that he literally painted like modern subject matter uh, but that's not the that's not the only reason but on the surface that is one argument or one level of of why he's modern but it doesn't necessarily mean he painted these factories and trains and ships in styles that we would associate with modernism at least not in the beginning uh, but that's one aspect of it and then but the other aspect is he did uh, kind of have a quite an innovative and ahead of his time style in terms of the way he painted and his brushwork. So a lot of historians, uh, art historians, would say that he was his work was kind of the inspiration behind impressionists in the uh, like in the late 19th century, so late 1800s, early 1900s, as well as abstract expressionists who were working in the mid 20th century. So uh, that is an argument for why he like is connected to the modern art movement. But yeah, so like he did well in his lifetime. So unlike, I think we, oh, actually on our special, we talked about Van Gogh and how he was not successful in his lifetime. Uh, Turner was someone who was very successful in his lifetime. He was a part of the Royal Academy, uh, which is this very prestigious art institution in, in, in Britain. Um, and he sold a lot of his artworks. As I mentioned, he had a lot of commissions from like business people. Uh, he did exhibit quite widely in his lifetime. Um, but at the same time, <clears throat> a lot of his contemporaries and a lot of people at the time did did think he was, especially later in his life, his later works uh, were kind of like, this guy's nuts. This is, this is weird. Like, we're not used <laughs> to this. Um, so part, some of his works were not well received at the time, but would also later to, you know, uh, would also be appreciated at a later time. That's so interesting to think of Turner being considered avant-garde in <laughs> any way, because in my head, he's just such this classic, famous artist. But I guess that does make sense on two levels. One, like all the stuff that you're talking about of um, both his subject matter and his style pointing towards the direction of modern art um, and being an inspiration for some of those artists who are more associated with the modern art movement. But also, it makes sense in a way that I'm more familiar with his more traditional representational paintings and less familiar with the ones, probably some that we're going to see today, I assume, um, that are a little bit more out there, which may have received more recognition uh, in later years, but probably still aren't what he's best known for or like seems to most often represent his work. 
Yeah, I certainly don't. Yeah, don't associate Turner with being avant-garde. But at the time, or a certain certain um, or some of his work were considered quite out there. Um, yeah, so I think I, I will start with kind of chronologically uh, with his life um, and some of the uh, how he got into painting and um, his career uh, because it again it's connected to the events that he witnessed throughout his life um, at which inspired a lot of his a lot of his works yeah so he was um, he was born um, into a actually a lower middle class family um, in London but he um, he actually started painting quite young and he actually was um he entered the london's royal academy as a student in 1789 when he was only 14 um yeah that and which is like it's like i think the most prestigious art academy in the country as far as i know like at the time um that also happens to be the year the french revolution began obviously he's in britain so but we'll talk about later how that did affect um well the world <laughs> like um but but uh, also turner let me just show you right now um i think if you click on the first um link in the show notes that will bring you to one of the paintings he did i think just a year or two after he entered the royal academy so he was 16 when he painted this <laughs> If you would like to describe what you are looking at. I am looking at a painting. It's in landscape. um, And the background of the painting is the front of a series of buildings. It's like one of those streets where all the buildings are connected. The sort of center focus of the photo is this large kind of gray building. And then in front of the building, sort of pouring out of it, there are all of these people. Um, Some of them have these buckets of water that they're pouring over stuff in the front or like getting water out of um, spigots. Is that the word? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Yeah, but generally there's just like people milling about um, all in front of this building. And it seems like if you look You can see just a little bit into the building and it does look like there might be some amount of smoke coming out of it from the back. All of the colors are quite muted. Like most of the painting is kind of like gray, light brown. Um, No bright colors really to be seen here. Yeah. And would you say the the work is um, pretty like real realistic in terms of representation oh absolutely this is definitely a very realistic painting not really seeing much experimentation in terms of abstraction like i mentioned he did paint this at 16 which like when i read that i was like i'll just go home now (laughs) (laughs) so um but um yeah so he painted this when he was 16 and it was actually after he witnessed a fire that destroyed uh this building called the pantheon opera house in london um and so it was you know it's based on a real scene that he saw um and he painted this picture of 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 a real life event uh which is something that he would continue to do uh in the future um but like you mentioned this one 
it's it's very it's very formal um it seems like it it really is very similar to probably what you would expect to see at the royal academy or like what other artists would have been painting like so um he really like this work he is abiding by you know this like traditional classical um artistic rendering style uh, with pers- like correct perspectives in terms of architecture and people and um you know and it i think you know i think it looks really nice it's a really nice painting but really in terms of I, I guess what i'm trying to say is like there's not much that's like really special about this painting again it's really well done and it's really like like he's obviously a very good a very good artist in terms of like his technique but there isn't really anything that's like especially innovative with with this painting but again he was 16 so yeah like if i was walking in a gallery and i saw this it wouldn't really make me stop throughout this time like he would he would paint a combination between like picturesque landscapes of uh, places that he saw as well as historic buildings like so you can kind of see in this one like he's painting uh, buildings and then he's also uh, he like he he was traveling around I think Britain at the time uh, but a little bit uh, a few years later he would actually travel around Europe and he actually so there's this thing that a lot of European artists do um, like these you know young men what they would do like is they would do this thing called the Grand Tour where they would like travel all around Europe going to these like classical sites. He did this before there was widespread um, like steam uh, engine train travel. So he actually uh, traveled like on the back of a horse wagon. Basically what he saw like on the road would have been very uh, just like beautiful nature and countryside and like he saw this continent just before like the industrial revolution basically so he saw these landscapes that were not necessarily completely untouched but like quite um like relatively in their original state like natural state i guess i would say and that will become important because a lot would change like in in the ensuing decades um and what kind of was interesting is like his landscapes um especially the ones he did on watercolors, which I'll show you some examples of in a bit, um, would become kind of nostalgic for people because they were, they would have, they would be seeing these like mountains and, you know, lakes and skies. And, but a lot of these scenes, like they wouldn't be there anymore. Um, and people kind of would be drawn to them. I think uh, we talked about something similar a number of episodes about how the Florida highwaymen were depicting these like backcountry in Florida that also weren't um, around anymore by the time people were buying these paintings. And again, there was there's this like nostalgia for these types of scenes, and it's like one of the reasons why this type of paint these types of paintings kind of became popular among like people in general and also collectors. So that's that's just one of the reasons why mo- why like Turner kind of like during even during his lifetime became pretty successful. Yeah, I mean, we talk now about how rapidly technology is changing and the, the last couple of decades has been such a rapid change of technology and in a lot of ways, a rapid change of the way that 
humans interact with the earth and build on the earth and like all these different kinds of things. But there's definitely a lot of parallels to be drawn with this exact time that you're describing that Turner was coming up in and the amount of rapid change that happened in his lifetime in terms of industrialization. I could definitely see how being able to represent the past and as well as some of those changes and looking towards um, all these different things that were going on would strike a chord with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we're not going to go over too much uh, of some of these other paintings, but basically the next two the next two paintings I have in the show notes, uh, one is called um, The Interior of a Cannon Foundry. That's an example of um, like the inside of a factory that he, he that he painted. Um, I think this one. Yeah, this one was a watercolor. He did. A, he did a lot of watercolors. Um, so in the. I think it was the late 1700s or early 1800s watercolor as a medium was I think like either invented or perfected I'm not exactly sure but it basically became viable for him to take uh, watercolors with him on these trips and watercolor unlike oil it dries really quickly so you can actually go outside paint something and have it dry within like 10 minutes maybe even less and put it away and go keep going and sketch even more so he you know it was it's a very portable medium um but i don't know if like you've ever worked with watercolor but i have tried it is incredibly difficult to work with because it's so like just hard to control and like because i've walked with worked with watercolor like when i see just his level of control with watercolor and how he's able to paint with it i'm just like how like like how do you do this obviously there's a reason he's famous and talented but still like (laughs) um in this exhibition they they had a lot of his watercolors which um is also i'm also very impressed just with the fact that um his these works are like over two sorry are over 200 years old and how the fact that a lot of these watercolors survived this long is also very impressive (laughs) That's a another win for technology. Yeah. Um and then the next one um I uh in the in the show notes I just wanted to show you for a couple reasons. Um one um it's another example of him kind of painting modern life. So it's this painting with um a bunch of blacksmiths arguing. So again, he's depicting blacksmiths, like people who are um, like working in the industry and their everyday lives. But the other thing is the title of this painting, which he gave, it's not even his longest title, but it's called A Country Blacksmith Disputing Upon the Price of Iron and the Price Charged to the Butcher for Shoeing His Pony. This man titles paintings like Fall Out Boy. <laughs> Yeah, so he, he, Britain was pretty much at the war front for for most of his life. So there was the War of 1812, uh, which uh, was a war between Britain and the United States. Um, And then there was also the Napoleonic Wars, which was from like the late 1700s until 1815. Um, He himself like never fought in the war, um, but it was something that was... I guess like in the news, you know, the the news back then traveled a lot slower than today, but it is, it is something that he was aware of and he was actually very interested in. He was really interested in like military conflicts um, and it ended up uh, becoming a lot of parts of his artworks. So he, 
initially started the way he he was painting it was almost like he was glorifying war although it's not entirely clear but the more time went on the more it became obvious that he was showing like the horrors of war like this is like he was making social commentary on war itself basically and an example of that is um the fourth one in the show notes um that i have is um called the field field of waterloo uh which was a um depiction of the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, um, where Britain and Prussia defeated France. So um, again, so this one, I think it is, yeah, it is one of his early earlier ones, I believe. Um, and uh, it, I think this one is like one of his, I think one of his famous works. Um, but he will have another work that he painted later on of Napoleon, uh, which is quite a different context as this one. I'll show you that later on yeah this one is very dark very grim yeah painting like battles and wars and current events uh was something that he uh really liked doing uh but one of the other things he uh was that was also a subject matter of his uh was actually the independent state of venice so venice which is a part of italy now but at the time was an independent state he traveled to venice multiple times in his life and he it was one of the it was one of the places that he he painted a lot and like as this Venice is one of those examples where every trip you go on, you can see, like, if you compare his works of Venice from the first time he went to the last time he went, you can see an evolution of his style. Uh, so this uh, one I have in the show notes called Venice, the Bridge of Size is one of the ones from um, 1840. So I think in this one, um, uh, actually, yeah, if you want to describe what you see and in this one and talk about how you like comparing this one to that other the one that we saw of um the the opera house that burned down and what differences you see in terms of his style between that and this one so the bridge of size is a very interesting painting um you have in the background a fairly realistic depiction of venice i would say you know you have you have some buildings with these columns and you have the actual bridge it's like basically just the left of the center of the painting and then um in the canals itself on the left side you have a few different people in gondolas and then on the right side there's a very interesting artistry here it's basically this whole big mishmash of boats and people and it's very abstracted it's unclear where one starts and one ends um, even on the left side like it's it's as if the paint is smudged and pulled down from itself um, and so like the the so the paint of these forms is like drawn out into almost like this pseudo shadow of itself on top of there being this general uh, mixing together an abstraction of these forms and then so comparing it to this like very early work it's interesting because there are you could i think that it still does seem like the same artist there is a similar color palette there's a similar kind of sensibility and the kind of things that he's depicting um you still have this like very detailed depiction of architecture still stands out to me 
but there's just so much more style now. There's so much more personality in this painting. Um, and there, even though it is a very similar color palette, there, there's something about it that is much deeper. Um, he is using some reds and some much darker colors in certain spots to pull focus to those. And he's really trying to say something with how he's using color instead of just realistically depicting a scene. For sure. And for me, like, it almost feels like there's, um, like, the scene is alive and there's movement in it. Like, when you have the brushstrokes, um, like, almost, like, dancing a little bit. Like, the people, the, the first one, it's, like, almost as if, uh, or the one that we saw earlier when he painted, the one he painted when he was 16, it's, like, okay, you take a picture of someone and they're, like, very still. Whereas this one, like, I get the sense that there's like there's people moving and there's boats rowing back and forth, even though we're looking at a still image of like a painting. Yeah, absolutely. These are just a couple more examples of how he became really abstract. Like you, you can kind of see where, um, uh, like why people are saying he's kind of associated with impressionism and abstract expressionism at this point uh, in his career. Yeah, man, especially the snowstorm painting. When I look at this, I can feel the movement of this water. Like, I feel like this is scratching my brain in a certain way. I feel like I am moving towards this boat. I feel like this water is choppy around me. I don't know what it is, but this has the most movement of any still frame I've ever seen. I when I was there, um, I did I did watch uh, like another video clip of a expert talking about uh, his work, and he compared the snowstorm painting to um, a Joe Mitchell painting. Actually, the I didn't get it. It was he went so fast. I didn't write down which Joe Mitchell painting, but really it could be any of them. Um, and so th- like it, it's not necessarily like Joe Mitchell wasn't painting you know, like seascapes, like she was painting like abstract thoughts in her head. But in terms of the movement and the dynamism and the brushstrokes, when he put the two paintings by side by side, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Hey, that's a really cool comparison. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, call back to also another episode (laughs) where we talked about Joe Mitchell. Anyway, so yeah, so moving kind of moving on from these uh, paintings. uh, So the one that was kind of like front and center in this show, uh, but and most likely because this particular work is a part of the MFA's collection. Uh, it's known as Slave Ship, but the full title, again, as Turner named it, was Slavers Throwing Overboard the Dead and Dying, Typhoon Coming On. So very literal. So of course, um, you will know what it's about just from the title, but if you would like to also describe what you are seeing... Wow, this painting is really interesting. So this is another seascape. Shout out to Rembrandt. But no, this is <laughs> this is another seascape and it's another stormy seascape. You have this movement of water and it's the I would say the, the focal point that my eyes are drawn to immediately when looking at this painting is the sunset in the background because those these are these yellows and oranges and reds and like much brighter colors than the rest of the painting and it the, the sunset is quite beautiful and so I'm immediately drawn to that and then it takes me a second to look at the rest of the painting where you have this ship that's mostly in the background and then in the foreground of the 
painting, there are these stormy seas and you have to kind of look closer. It takes you a second and then you realize that there are people in the sea and there you don't see like a whole form. You mostly see hands, arms, legs. You see the chains attached to their limbs as they're grasping out. It's quite an evocative painting, and it's also a deeply tragic painting. It does not, it makes it very clear and present how horrific this is. And even the, the positioning of the ship, I think, is very deliberate as well, is that the, the ship is clearly already quite some distance away from these people and is clearly heading away from them um, and leaving all these people to die after murdering them. When I first saw this painting, it was at the Turner Show at the AGO a number of years ago, and I hadn't seen it before. And what uh, was really striking to me is when you first look at it, you your your eyes quite often are drawn to the dazzling sunset in the background, and I'm like, oh, that's so pretty. And then I'm like, oh, oh, oh my god, okay, yeah, um, it is not a pretty painting, not no. at all. <laughs> so. Um, and so it's depicting this incident from 1781 of a sl slave ship called Zong, and it's where the ship's crew, they murdered 132 sick and dying enslaved Africans, and then threw them, or actually not and then, by throwing them overboard, like most of them are still alive, but when they were thrown overboard, and some of them would have been like eaten by the fish, as you can see in the foreground of this painting, um, and it was pretty much because the people were at this time considered cargo and the crew uh, wanted to collect the insurance money for those lost at sea. Th this particular incident was one of the incidents that uh, contributed to the outcry, you know, to, uh, to that kind of galvanized ab abolition, abolitionism. Britain ended up abolishing slavery 40 years after that incident, so in 1832, and uh, Turner did end up painting this after slavery was already abolished in Britain, not in a lot of other parts of the world, of course, um, and he he was obviously still demonstrating the horrors of slavery and what and something that continues to persist around the globe not only during his time, but still to this day. Um, that's one thing, you know, I, that really I did learn when I f saw this work of Turner's a few years ago, but even um, it, I was reminded of it, seeing it at this show, like, you know, slavery is still something that goes on today in the world, um, which a lot of people don't realize. Uh, but in any case, it, it definitely was um, uh, something that was still quite prevalent in a lot of in a lot of the world um, back then as well. And he was um, like this, you know, this painting makes it pretty obvious what his stance on uh, what what his stance was. Um, but of course, yeah, when it was first exhibited back in the 1840s, um, it's still kind of, you know, it was quite a controversial piece. A lot of people were very like, like shocked, obviously, but um yeah, there was like there was a lot of uh, controversy around it uh, at the time, um, but it actually eventually came into uh, the um, possession of a young um, art critic uh, called uh, John Ruskin, and he actually 
was also a quite influential, um, a, a quite influential art critic. Um, and he eventually uh, sold it uh, to the first president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, in 1872. And then it eventually uh, was then sold into the Museum of Fine Arts. And that's how uh, it ended up in America, basically. Um, this painting, I think, it's it i think it really shows how this style of turners like how he, the dynamic movements of his brushstroke like it really expresses i think what he was trying to express in in this work cuz i think if you if he painted this or if anybody painted this in a very like highly realistic way i don't think it would express like the same movement and obviously the same like emotions this painting gives yeah that's exactly the word i was going to use that it's it is still representational and that he's painting a depiction of this event but he's also painting the emotions into it not just attempting to create a photograph yeah exactly yeah, the only other thing um, uh, I did kind of want to mention on a lighter note, uh, maybe, about uh, Turner uh, was that uh, so he he got into the Royal Academy when he was very young, um, when he was 14, and he continued to exhibit uh, in the Royal Academy. Um, but yeah, as time went on, he kind of... Um, uh, pe like people thought he became more and more like wild, like he obviously did in terms of his style, but he also did in terms of like just his personality and actions in a way. Um, so he, um, uh, there was this uh, thing that uh, the Royal Acad the Royal Academy did every year when they were exhibiting uh, their works is when artists. Uh, when artists hang their paintings, they actually have a few days to put finishing touches on it when sorry, when the paintings are already on the walls. And that's usually when people are putting like a finishing coat and maybe some like touch-ups. Um, but he, what, what it is, is like his painting would be almost like not even started or like there would just be a rough sketch and he would hang it up. And the people who are running the show were really worried and were like, um, tomorrow we're opening the exhibition. Like what is this? <laughs> so so then what he would do is in the final hours before the show, he would show up with a bucket of paint and brushes, sometimes a mop, apparently, and just like start performing to a point where people would show up to watch him perform basically like it's not just painting anymore and he would just be like throwing paint on the canvas like swishing back and forth and grabbing a mop and putting the finish on it because it's so last minute um I mean like I I don't know like you know if what the reason is I don't know if he like he purposely put on a show because he thought it was interesting or if, if he was just like oh crap I need to get this done like so, so, I mean, it just made me think, I'm like, yeah, it reminds me of me in my university days, like hours before a project. <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> he's a famous guy displaying at the most pre prestigious academy and I'm just turning in homework. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Same energy, different results. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, people consider him, thought he was acting really weird at the Royal Academy. Um, they, you know, he, he kind of became more and more eccentric. And uh, unfortunately, he um, 
I guess I sort of became a bit of a social outcast because people were just like, oh, this guy's just turning into like a crazy old man, splashing paint all over the place um, and painting with a mop, which I guess one could see why that would be a little bit odd. Um, but anyway, so um, yeah, so he became like quite uh, reclusive and uh, he, uh, for a while, um, he... I think lived um, by himself in a studio, but he did eventually um, have a long-term uh, relationship uh, with this woman called um, Sophia Carolyn Booth. Um, and I don't believe they were ever married, um, but they they did live together in her house in Chelsea for um, the last number of years of his life. Um, and he uh, eventually died of cholera um, in uh, 1851 um, at the age of 76. Anyway, uh, so, you know, kind of like a anticlimactic ending, I guess. Um, but however, like his his legacy, you know, as we talked about would go on to like inspire a lot of people and you know like the impressionist and abstract expressionist and pretty much like a lot of art <laughs> um and i would say um yeah like you know people like uh, there have been a lot people a lot more eccentric after after him <laughs> so yeah, I had no idea Turner was this weird on many levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um I didn't either like before before learning about him and yeah there's just there's so much to to look at like I would encourage like if you could see this show like you know please see it it's it's really great and um but also just like yeah looking into other Turner works beyond just the you know ones that are well known um because for me some of my favorite works are his watercolors like i almost just like wanted to spend this entire show showing you his watercolors but um there yeah there's just a lot more to um to explore and to to uh look at well thank you so much for sharing that all with me today yeah. and thanks everybody for listening you can find our show notes at relay.fm slash pictorial, or you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. You can also find me on Instagram or TikTok at aspiringrobotfm. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at articulationsv, and I am also on YouTube as articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we also have a YouTube channel, Pictorial Podcast, where we will upload video versions of our audio podcasts um, a few weeks or months sometimes if I'm late um, of after the audio version is out uh, so for this one you will be looking at some very lovely Turner paintings thanks for listening art enthusiasts